You're listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode eight, Ohio vs. Celebrity. We are past the halfway point of our second season here on Ohio v. The World, the world's only Ohio history podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, share the show with your friends. It's, word of mouth is by far the best thing that keeps us going, keeps our show growing. Uh, and rate and review the show on iTunes. You just scroll down on your phone right now um, and just give us the five stars right there. It's just one push of a button. It helps us stay high in the rankings. Uh, usually right now when you type in Ohio, we're the fifth or sixth podcast that shows up after about four or five different Ohio State football podcasts. So if we could just pass one of those football podcasts, I'd be really happy. Today we're talking about the life and times of Kate Chase, who I consider to be America's original celebrity. This country, which is obsessed with, with celebrity culture, uh, you know, we have a celebrity as our president. You know, the ultimate proof is, is Donald Trump. I mean, Oprah Winfrey gives one good speech last month, and everyone wants to give her the presidency in 2020. Looks like she doesn't want that. I don't see why she would want that. But TMZ, Entertainment Tonight, the original, Extra, the E! Channel. My God, the E! Channel. Um, the Learning Channel, is the TLC, has even been ruined by celebrity culture, by our obsession with people who are famous, but not just famous, but famous for doing nothing. And we're talking about Kate Chase today. Um, she's kind of the original Paris Hilton, Kim Kardashian, although she had a lot more substance. I find her to be one of the most fascinating people in American history. From Cincinnati to Columbus, ultimately to spending her life in our nation's capital. We'll talk about Kate Chase, the daughter of Senator, Governor, Supreme Court Chief Justice, Treasury Secretary Salmon P. Chase, who we'll share for a later, uh, for a later episode on, on her father, Salmon P. Chase. Um, but today we're talking about Kate, his oldest daughter, and how we like to take celebrities and build them up and build them up just to tear them down. And Kate was kind of the original American celebrity to follow that archetype to be built up by the, by the nation and the media, just to be completely torn down to rock bottom. Our guest today is John Oller. John's a repeat guest. We had him on earlier this season in our Ohio vs. Murder 2.0 episode about the murder of Christy Mullins. Go back and listen to episode four. It's a two-part episode, true crime episode. And one of our most popular episodes we've ever done. We've gotten a ton of feedback on it uh, and a lot of listens. But John's back to talk about his book from 2014 called American Queen, The Rise and Fall of Kate Chase Sprague, Civil War Belle of the North, and Gilded Age Woman of Scandal. Awesome book. John's a fantastic guest. So glad he's back. Our beer for today's episode, we're going down to Cincinnati, the home of the Chases, Taft's Brewing Company, taftsalehouse.com. Uh, I had this beer 
last week when my band was playing at the Columbus Beer Fest at the convention center. Um, we were up in the VIP area, and they had a tent for Tafts. I'd never heard of Tafts, um, but they've got a great-looking uh, tap house in an old church in, in Over the Rhine. So it's this beer we're had, I had last week is called the Chief Justice. It's a double imperial IPA, 9.5%. It didn't taste quite like 9.5%, though. Uh, it was still reasonably light, uh, just a great beer, uh, and it's called the Chief Justice. Kate Chase's father, Salmon P. Chase, in the 1860s would become the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Um, and Taft's down in Cincinnati there on Ray Street. Uh, just, you know, just if you're leaving a ball game, you can probably even make a walk up there uh, on Ray Street. They had a bunch of great beers, but today we're drinking, like I said, the Chief Justice in honor of Kate's father, Salmon P. Chase. If you're ever down at a Reds game or a Bengals game right across the bridge from the stadium, you'll find a plaque for Salmon P. Chase, Salmon Portland Chase, uh, one of my favorite figures in Ohio history. Like I said, we'll do an episode on him uh, next season or, or, or even the season after that. But again, check out Taft's Ale House. Uh, if you're down in Cincinnati, they've got a Bruporium down there also. Um, and a really solid beer, and they're they really fun. We, we're glad we got to hang out with them last week. But without further ado, we're going to talk about Kate Chase, one of America's original celebrities. She comes in a time of, of war, in a time where there's a growth of newspapers, a growth of literacy across the country, more people reading those newspapers, more people moving into the cities, a growing national identity, which is what it takes for celebrity culture. We have to have a shared media, shared experience. Um, and that's where Kate Chase grows out of in the 1850s and 60s and 70s. I find her to be endlessly fascinating. Her life, Miss Ohio v. The World, has always thought my fascination with Kate to be a little bit odd, and maybe so. Today, we're going to talk about the rise and fall of Kate Chase. It's episode eight, Ohio vs. Celebrity. Kate Chase was born August 13, 1840, in Cincinnati, Ohio. She was the first daughter of Salmon P. Chase uh, to his second wife. Salmon P. Chase will talk about very unlucky in love, but his second wife gave birth to Kate in 1840. Salmon had already reached prominence. He was an attorney, an abolitionist, and a politician. He defended a number of, of different defendants in, in fugitive slave cases and had made a name for himself. He sent Kate away to school in New York. He wanted to give his daughters the best education possible. This is one of the things that really set Kate apart from other women in, in the Gilded Age and during the, the Civil War was her incredible education. We read all these letters, and John shares them in the book, all these letters between Salmon P. Chase and his daughter, Kate. He would always be very difficult on her grammar. He was like the ultimate grammar police, uh, you know, tearing up her sentences in these long, you know, these long correspondence between the two. But we talked to John about her education, about her early years. 
By way of background, there's a, there was a woman in Ohio named Catherine Beecher. She was the um, uh, sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe and, um, and Henry Ward Beecher, who was a famous preacher. The Beechers of Cincinnati were quite famous, and uh, they were friends of Sam and Chase. Catherine Beecher was big into women's and girls' education, and she believed that they should not be just educated to become housewives or domestics, but rather they should learn the arts and sciences and things like that. And there's a, a quote she um, that I have in the book that she wanted to educate young women into a, a parlor-based culture from which they could then spread their influence across the country. It's almost as if she was prophetic, speaking about Kate. So anyway, Sam and Chase had the same idea. He thought his uh, daughter should receive a, a classic liberal education. So he sent her to boarding school in New York when she was age nine. A very well-known boarding school at the time, very fashionable, expensive, uh, called uh, uh, Henrietta Haynes's boarding school. It was on uh, Gramercy Park. Uh, it's still there. The building is still there. But anyway, so she learned. She she took a variety of subjects. She took French. She took history, math, grammar, penmanship, composition, um, music, piano, dancing, um, and particularly relevant to her, her later skills as a hostess, she was taught what they called elocution, which was the art of speaking and pronunciation. And that was one of her strong points. She was a very eloquent uh, person. And uh, it's really that education she got starting in New York that um, gave her that background as a conversationalist with wide-ranging interests and knowledge. And she put that to a, to use uh, later in her you know, career as a parlor politician. Uh, she did come back to Columbus uh, to further her education in um, when she was, uh, in, say, in her mid-teens. Uh, she went to a place called, um, it was called the Esther Institute, a finishing school where she studied music, painting, and language. It, um, it was on Broad Street, it is on Broad Street. It's the site uh, I think it's the same, may still be the same building, the current athletic club in oh, Columbus. Oh, sure, yeah, the, the Columbus Athletic Club, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, and then she, her schooling was supplemented by private French lessons at home almost every evening for several months. Kate's father, Salmon P. Chase, becomes a U.S. senator in 1850 from Ohio when Kate's just 10 years old. Salmon P. Chase would end up depending on her throughout his impressive political career to be his hostess, to almost be his, you know, his first lady. Because Salmon P. Chase lost all three of his wives. He lost them all early due to illness. People died back, back in the day at alarming rates, and it could happen at any time. Salmon P. Chase, like we said, very unlucky in love. But his unluckiness you know, was able to bring Kate into a role of prominence, of not just a daughter, but almost you know, taking on the role of an important man's wife, Salmon P. Chase, her father. We asked John about Salmon P. Chase and just how unlucky in love he was and how it allowed the beautiful and intelligent Kate to take on such a more important role. Right. Well, uh, Salmon Chase... 
um, lost three wives before he was 45 years old and four of his six children. Uh, his only surviving children were Kate and her half-sister, Nettie, who was the daughter of the third wife. And um, so by the time he became a politician in, in Washington, a uh, senator, um, uh, he, was, he had no wife. So Kate, being the oldest, was sort of the natural hostess. She played his hostess as governor uh, in, in Columbus. And then later on when he was, um, a, a senator and, um, and, uh, treasury secretary in Washington. And he never remarried, right? I, I don't, that's right. I right. feel like Case didn't want him to remarry. I, I think that's true. There were a couple, uh, women, one in particular who was chasing Chase, um, and Kate, uh, disliked her and the feeling was mutual. In 1856, Salmon P. Chase becomes governor of Ohio. He's elected as a Republican, a brand new party that he basically helped found. Salmon P. Chase is, is the father of the Republican Party, which ran its first presidential candidate that same year, John C. Fremont, the Pathfinder, in 1856. Kate comes home from New York from her schooling at age 16 to become his hostess. We talked to our guest, John Aller, about the Chase's move to Columbus, how Kate comes back to Ohio, and her prominence and rise to a national celebrity really begins here in the capital city. Uh, well, they, they lived, um, I think they rented for, for a bit first, but their first real home was a Gothic revival mansion at uh, 6th and State Streets in downtown Columbus that he had purchased to uh, replace their rented quarters. Ohio had no official governor's residence at the time. Now, the the the... the mansion they lived in is no longer there, but there is a red brick building there. I'm not sure what the name of it is, but it's it's across from a white uh, church. It's on the northeast corner of 6th and State. Where she became kind of his official hostess when he was governor. She would put on the dinners and uh, host things. And, and I mean, she was only 16, 17 years old at the time. She decorated the place, spent a lot of money doing so. That would become a habit of hers over the years. Uh, and she met a lot of prominent politicians, uh, among them um, Charles Sumner, who was a the senator from Massachusetts, yeah. strong abolitionist who was a close friend of Salmon Chase, uh, Carl Schurz, the German-American statesman, um, you know, a lot of a lot of major domos in the Republican in the growing Republican Party came through the Chase House, and she, you know, sat and listened, and even partook in some of the dinner conversations. Sometimes in French, she was fluent in French, as was Charles Sumner. So they would sit there. You know, speaking French. Uh, Sumner had kind of a crush on her too. Yes, yeah, so a, little, a, a little bit, I would say. He was a bachelor, and um, he, he did end up marrying later in life, and she didn't like the wife too much either. Um, but uh, yeah, that she she and Sumner hit it off pretty well. With her father being such an important figure in the anti-slavery movement in the years leading up to the Civil War in the late 1850s, while Kate was here in Columbus. Kate becomes a celebrity here in the Buckeye State. Her father's political star continues to grow as he considers a run for president in 1860. 
more and more people began coming to Columbus to see him. Important politicians like Carl Schurz, Charles Sumner, James Garfield even. Kate was fluent in French. Kate knew everything about the political scene. She was able to have conversations at dinner and over breakfast with all these important men and hold her own. But it was also, we'd be lying if we didn't say that her looks, her looks helped her become a celebrity. She was tall for her time. She was about 5'7", which was pretty tall for yeah, a very much so. woman at that time. Thin, uh, very, very beautiful. She had a, one slight uh, deficiency. Her, they called it a pug nose. It was slightly upturned, although uh, Carl Schurz said it was actually very becoming and very pleasing. Um, but uh, so she was very graceful. She would enter a room and then sit down in her big hoop skirt, mm-hmm. uh, almost like a bird, a graceful bird, you know, descending. Um, and she had that sort of elegance to her uh, that um, very much mesmerized people. She would walk into a room and it would kind of a hush would come over the room and all eyes would turn to her. And she would kind of, you know, look one way and then look the other way in a very slow-moving, graceful motion that um, uh, people really were impressed by. And as such, Kate was, was the object of many men's affection. Older men, men her age, you know, her father was very religious and I'm sure kept everyone away from her as best he could. But Kate had a little bit of a wild side. And despite her father being so pious, her father's career being so important to avoid scandal, Kate was the subject of a scandal in Columbus during her late teens. Kate was rumored to be consorting with a married 28-year-old man named Richard Nevins of Columbus, Ohio. And despite Solomon P. Chase's best efforts, he could not keep them apart. This was a scandal that would follow her for decades. Yes, uh, Dick Nevins. Uh, she ran into trouble. It was around age 16 when she sort of openly consorted with this older married man, uh, Dick Nevins. He was sort of a handsome, dashing, 28-year-old local printer with a wife and a young baby. And he would take Kate out carriage riding, visited her at the Chase home when her father was away. Um, And it was said that after her father banished Nevins from the household, Kate and Nevins arranged to meet, you know, at... um, at the house of one of her friends, where Nevins would drive by, passing his carriage or buggy, awaiting Kate's signal by hand- handkerchief. Um, she, and this became a subject of gossip, uh, f- especially among the local women who didn't particularly like Kate. They felt she was condescending and snobbish, and uh, frankly, I think they were jealous. Uh, that, and that's something that stuck with her her whole life, Jeal- yeah. jealousy from women who envied her beauty, her power, her her riches. Um, and, and anyway, this, this Nevins thing would come up from time to time. It, would, it came up 
when she was uh, court, being courted by her husband, her future husband, it came up. Nearly, like, nearly broke off that engagement. Yes, yes. Uh, so, and I don't know how much of it, how much if any of it was actually true, but you know the nature of gossip is it doesn't have to be true. It, it's what people believe. Solomon P. Chase was one of the leading candidates for president in 1860. The Republican Party, led by people like Chase and William Seward. We'll do a Chase episode, and we'll talk about that election, which really is really well covered in Team Arrivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin, that entire nomination process that ends up you know, nominating Abraham Lincoln, who goes on to become our 16th president. But just before that election in 1860, in September of 1860, Kate meets her husband. She's still the first lady here in Ohio. Her, her, her father is still the governor of Ohio in 1860 during the build-up to war. But Kate makes a trip up to Cleveland for the unveiling of a statue of Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry. Perry, the subject of our fourth episode, Ohio vs. the British Empire, the winner of the Battle of Lake Erie. There's a giant monument still in Ohio on, in, on Putin Bay, the Perry Victory Monument. Go back and listen to episode four, another really popular episode of ours, um, especially if you enjoy sailing or the War of 1812. You can go back and listen to that one. Um, but as a debutante, she goes to all kinds of parties. She's a socialite. She goes to Cleveland for a huge celebration for this Perry, this Perry statue, and she meets the man who would become her future husband. It was the dedication of a monument to uh, Oliver Hazard Perry, the uh, Commodore, Perry. Commodore Perry from the War of 1812. He was from Rhode Island, which is where her future husband was from. But the actual party was in Cleveland. And uh, she was introduced to this man, William Sprague, uh, who was, um, I believe at that time, was the governor of Rhode Island. You're right, yeah. Um, Young, they called him the boy governor. He was elected or, or bought his office around age 29, I believe. Um, but anyway, he was sort of a, a dashing, romantic figure. He, you know, almost kind of looked like uh, John Wilkes Booth. He had that dark hair, dark mustache, kind of a swarthy look to him. And um, he was a little shorter than Kate. He was five five or five six, but it was. I don't know if it was love at first sight, but they were immediately attracted to each other that night. She spent most of the night talking to him, dancing with him. And then when a couple came and said, you know, do you want to leave? She said, no, one more dance or something. And so they didn't, they didn't strike up a romance immediately, but some months later in Washington, D.C., they reconnected. Um, and it was really, it had started in Cleveland. Lincoln wins election in November 1860, and before taking office in March, puts together this cabinet, this team of rivals. And Lincoln had no bigger rival than Kate's father, Salmon P. Chase. Chase, who had lost the nomination, was still bitter about that loss. Thought he would make a much better president than this Illinois lawyer, this bumpkin. Salmon P. Chase was obsessed with the presidency. The presidency can take over that position in people's minds. And he had presidential fever. He ran in 1860. He would try to even secretly run again while Lincoln was still president in 64. 
We'll talk about his effort to run in 1868 with Kate's assistance in 1868. Chase wanted Secretary of State, but he doesn't get it. It goes to Seward, another one of his rivals. But he's given the position of Treasury Secretary. A very important position, especially months later when the war would start, of trying to finance the war and keep the country's finances in order. Something he would actually do an incredible job at, of keeping this country afloat financially during this war. But they moved to Washington, D.C. In their house, they buy a beautiful mansion, and their house becomes the mecca for radical Republicans, for people opposing Lincoln. Um for anti-slavery abolitionist thought, which had reached a boiling point at this point in in early 1860. Kate Chase becomes the hostess of maybe the most important party house this side of Pennsylvania Avenue in our nation's capital. We talked to John about their move to D.C. and how Kate takes on such an important role and how it basically leads to her rise to becoming what John calls an American queen. They they moved to a, a Sixth and E Streets Northwest in Washington, a, a mansion there. Uh, it's now the site of the uh, AARP headquarters, um, and it was sort. Of, it became the gathering pl- spot for what I would call the radical faction of the Republican Party, the more abolitionist-oriented, anti-slavery people, people like Sumner. Um, people like Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania, uh, they viewed Chase as kind of their leader-in-waiting, president-in-waiting. He had lost the nomination to Lincoln, um, but they saw him as their hope for 1864. So they would gather there. Kate would put on uh, breakfast dinners, candlelight dinners. They called them... um, uh, Sort of, I guess, late afternoon matinee dansants, if I've got that right. Uh, a candlelight afternoon dinner dance. Um, and she would uh, set the guest list. She would set the, you know, tell everyone where to sit. She made sure that uh, the seating arrangements were such that they were best positioned for her father. And um, you know, it was it's Chase did not smoke or drink. But uh, she always made sure that alcohol and tobacco were on hand for those who did. You know, chewing and spitting tobacco were big back then. Oh, yeah. And uh, so she was, you know, sort of the... She did everything that a hostess, a a spouse hostess would do, except that she was the daughter and at this time, I think, 20 years old. Lincoln is inaugurated in March, March 4th of 1861. He actually has to sneak into town after an assassination plot is uncovered in Baltimore. His presidency was incredibly controversial. And that's marred by just those months in between his inauguration. It used to be you wouldn't be inaugurated until March. It wasn't until FDR that we moved that up to January. But in those four months from the election to his inauguration, the country falls apart. All these southern states begin seceding. They see a president has been elected, Abraham Lincoln, and he's been elected by a purely North vote. Lincoln doesn't even appear on southern ballots for his anti-slavery stands, um, which was actually far, far more conservative than Solomon P. Chase's stand of complete abolition, of complete emancipation of all slaves. 
But what it shows you is that Fort Sumter, the, the war takes place or gets started a mere five weeks after Lincoln takes office. A number of these states had already seceded before he even took office. But on April 12th, Friday, April 12th, 1861, at 4.30 in the morning, Confederate guns under General Beauregard opened fire on Fort Sumter. I've been to Fort Sumter. I took Ohio v. The, Miss Ohio v. The World there. We took a boat outside of Charleston and visited the fort. It's just out there in, in Charleston Harbor. This first battle was, was a flashpoint in American history. General Robert Anderson was the Union general running the fort. He had pulled back from Fort Moultrie. He couldn't get supplied. There. He'd been blockaded. And Lincoln decides that there's nothing more he can do for him. They opened fire, and for nearly 36 hours, Anderson withstands the bombardment before finally surrendering to the new Confederate army. Anderson's a hero, even though it's a, southern, a northern defeat. Robert Anderson comes back to America. He brings the flag from Fort Sumter, and he goes back to New York City, where, again, he is a celebrity. He's feted. And as the war begins, Kate and her sister Nettie, she has a younger sister, one sister, find themselves in New York. When they left, war had not begun, but by the time they get to New York, the Civil War has begun, and they find themselves right in the middle of it. Yeah, they were at, uh, they were in New York, and they saw the big celebration at Union Square, where the flag from Fort Sumter was put up. It was the flag that um, the commander, Union commander at Fort Sumter, Robert Anderson, had brought back with him. And anyway, so Anderson was there in New York, and he was heading back to Washington anyway. And somehow, I don't know exactly how, Kate and Nettie hooked up with him, or he offered them a ride back. So they went with him uh, under his escort. Uh, They got to Philadelphia by train, and then they went uh, again by train to Perryville, Maryland, uh, where they got on a boat uh, for Annapolis. And during that voyage, they were pursued by hostile Confederate ships that fired on them. I don't know if they were Confederate ships, but they were what they would call privateers. They were, yeah. if in essence, working for the Confederate government. Uh, so they were fired a couple booming cannon shots that landed in the, in the wake of their uh, ship. Um, when they got safely to Annapolis, they took a train to D.C. over a route that was being repaired as they traveled by Union troops and had been destroyed by the, by the rebel army. And they finally arrived safely in Washington on a, on a spring morning. presidency, Kate becomes known as as Miss Lincoln's rival, Mary Todd Lincoln. There's even a book called Miss Lincoln's Rival. It's a fiction, historical fiction book I read. But Kate's already known in D.C. circles. And as D.C. becomes the center of our country, the center of the war, um, much more important and much more read about and people than it used to just be kind of the federal capital off somewhere in the swamplands of Maryland and Virginia. But now the culture of, of D.C. becomes much more important. Soldiers are, are 
stationed there by the thousands. The war's begun. The war is just just over the Potomac River from Washington. The defense of Washington becomes a big deal. And Kate becomes a big deal at throwing her parties, which are known across the country as being you know, some of the most lavish events. Kate was known to spend quite a bit of money. She had quite a, quite a wealthy lifestyle. But she becomes Miss Lincoln's rival. And we asked John, how does that happen? How do these two, the First Lady of the United States and the daughter of the Treasury Secretary, become such rivals in early Civil War D.C.? Um, well, I think it starts with um, a couple things. Kate's father and Mary's husband were political rivals, so it kind of naturally went down to the to, yeah. to the women. Uh, of course, Kate was young, tall, and slim, and Mary Lincoln was none of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, Mary was, I think, jealous of Kate's uh, beauty and age. Kate, I think, I don't know if jealous is the right word, but she envied the fact that Mary was the first lady when Kate thought that her father should have been president and that Kate would have been, in effect, the first lady. Um, Kate thought her father deserved to be president, uh, and her father certainly thought that as well. Uh, there's a story that they, they um, I don't know if they met for the first time, it might have been the second time, but at a state dinner in March of 1861 at the White House, Kate was there, was, the, of course, the object of, a, of attention of everyone. And um, at the end, in the receiving line, or the exit line, uh, Mary uh, Lincoln says to um, uh, Kate, you know, I shall be glad to have you call on me at any time, Miss Chase. And Kate kind of rises up to her full height and says, well, I, I shall be glad to have you call on me at any time. Yeah. Uh, and that became, um, I think the story is basically true, but wh- whether she meant it in a sarcastic way, I'm not sure. But that was blown up into, you know, their rivalry. Um, you know, Mary Lincoln had to put on these official functions at the White House. They were public, so anyone was invited. Kate had the luxury uh, of being able to hold these private affairs at the Chase Mansion where she could select the guest list and and did. So they were competing hostesses, um, both both intelligent women, both spoke fluent French, similar political views, I would say. Both were anti-slavery. You know, they might have worked together uh, cooperatively, but it just didn't work out that way. Kate, on the other hand, had a pretty cordial relationship with Mr. Lincoln. They, had, they met at many parties, they danced together, they laughed, they shared good times, and you know, even though her father was in the team of rivals, Lincoln never held that rivalry against her. And as we said, Kate knew everybody, and she knew the president. We asked John about her relationship with our 16th president, Honest Abe. They were respectful to each other in person. He called her Miss Kate. Uh, earlier in the war, when she visited the White House, he took her aside to point out through a spyglass the Confederate tents across the Potomac. She was one of a few women invited by the president to meet a delegation of Native American tribes at the White House. There's actually a picture of her uh, in, in that meeting. Um, and according to another story by Mrs. Lincoln's dressmaker, uh, Elizabeth Keckley, 
there was a you know a nighttime dance where Mary Lincoln supposedly told her husband that he was not allowed to dance with Kate Chase or or uh, or or Stephen Douglas's wife or widow, um, and she Mary called them silly women flatterers that she didn't like, and Lincoln said, "Well, I got to talk to someone. I can't just stand around like a simpleton and say nothing." Uh, and he said, "Well, you know, he supposedly said Kate was you know too young and too young to." be deceitful in that way so he ignored his wife's edict and spoke to whomever he liked that night including Kate uh, whose conversation he he enjoyed Uh, now on the other side Kate uh, as I say respected Lincoln in person but privately she was had occasion to disparage him thought of him as some sort of incompetent bumpkin which is kind of how her father viewed Lincoln. And this got back to Lincoln, and he later on said, you know, I, I, I can't hold against her father what her, his daughter says about me in, in private. I think Lincoln kind of magnanimously let it roll off his back. Kate's fame really begins to rise when she visits troops. Pictures are taken, and if you look at the, one of our cover photos, is of her with a, a number of Union officers as thousands of, of troops come to Washington. That's where you do a lot of your training. That's where you'd be stationed before you shipped out. And Kate goes to raise morale. She goes on a number of trips to meet troops, including William Sprague, her future husband, who was stationed there, had raised, a, had raised an army of, of Rhode Island men to go fight the South. We asked John just about her, her efforts during the war to kind of raise morale. And she went around. There's a famous photograph of her with a General Abercrombie, um, which shows her surrounded by about six or seven other Union officers, and she's holding a parasol in her long silk uh, hoop dress. That's a great picture. She was quite... um, uh, I think the officers were quite taken with her. It's interesting. She she liked meeting with the officers and going to the camp and mingling with the the, uh, higher-ups. She was not... Big on you know visiting the military hospitals where there was all the blood and gore, that was not her her thing, um, but um, she was certainly committed to the war effort. As we said, Kate's house was the center of of D.C. social life, thanks to her efforts of being an incredible host and their great parties and dinners. But a future she meets a future president again who comes to stay with them, James Garfield, a war hero, uh, a rising political star in Ohio. I think he'd been nominated for a congressional seat maybe at this time. Um, But he goes to stay with the Chases. And again, rumors start. Garfield, married, um, moves in with with the Chases and begins spending a a lot of time with Kate Chase. We asked John, is there any evidence of a of a James Garfield and Kate Chase romance, you know, during the early parts of the war when he lives with Salmon P. Chase and Kate in D.C. Um, I think probably platonic, but uh, not for lack of interest on Garfield's part. Put it that way. He um, at the time, just for context, Kate was had been dating seriously William Sprague, um, and then. James Garfield comes to Washington, and I think he was he was running for Congress 
at the time, or he'd been nominated on the Republican ticket, so he's almost assured of victory in November, but he wasn't actually elected yet. He was also seeking a military, another military assignment. Um, somehow he knew Salmon Chase from Ohio, and uh, Salmon Chase invited him to stay with the Chases there at the mansion on 6th Street, and he moved in. And Kate, in fact, Kate insisted, oh, you, must come, you must live with us. And within a few weeks... Um, she stopped dating William Sprague, and she spent a lot of time with Garfield. He would sit there at the breakfast table and dinner table with her and her father, and they'd talk politics. They had similar political views. Um, they, Kate and Garfield would go out horseback riding. They would visit some of the camps. They'd sing sing German songs around the piano with Carl Schurz and, and, mm-hmm. and other people. Yeah, so, they go, go riding in Rock Creek Park. And yeah, stuff like yeah, they were, you know, quite a couple. The only problem was he was married. Um, not particularly happily at that time uh, to Lucretia uh, Garfield. Crete, Crete, they called her. Um, who became very jealous of Kate. It got back to her how much time her husband was spending with her, and uh, she said, you know, I, I hear you're spending a lot of time with uh, Miss Chase. I Maybe I should be very jealous. And he tried to play it down by saying, well, okay, she's a nice girl, and uh, um, but, you know, she's not, she's not classically beautiful. She's got this pug nose, which kind of mars her face. I think he was, you know, intentionally trying to play down his feelings. Um, I don't know whether he ever really made a play for her, but but uh, it's unlikely she would have reciprocated at that point in her career. She couldn't afford a scandal, or her, her father couldn't afford a scandal like that. But um, uh, he certainly was on the make at the time because he, very shortly after he, or maybe toward the end of his tenure at the Chase House, he took up with a... Uh, a woman editor, reporter for the New York, one of the New York papers, Tribune, yeah, Herald, Herald yeah, yeah. Tribune, and and uh, had an affair with her. Almost ruined his marriage with Crete. She found out about it. He begged forgiveness, and he ended up staying married to Crete their whole life, and they had several kids. Um, but you know, I think it was one of those things. They were they were a great couple, but it was not the right. The, the timing was off. Garfield, Kate gets back with William Sprague. They'd stayed in touch. Their relationship, which had gone hot and cold, um, was hot again. Sprague, incredibly rich, the governor and then a senator from Rhode Island and a and a commander in the army. Uh, we talk about you know their courtship and how this relationship grows to become the most important in Kate's life. He was a millionaire heir to a Rhode Island textile business, uh, had been governor of Rhode Island, um, and then he served at Bull Run, had his horse shot out from under him, he tried to rally the troops, they would have nothing to do with it, they, they skedaddled, uh, he was very scornful of his own Rhode Island troops in later years for that episode, but um, uh, he ended up uh, back in Washington. I'm trying to remember whether whether he went to the Chase home to be 
have his wounds tended. They they were they were tending to a lot of the soldiers. I'm sure he went there and visited with Kate and uh, her father. But uh, then she started seeing him again, and they almost immediately rekindled their the feelings that they had they had started in in Cleveland. And then he becomes elected a U.S. senator from Rhode Island in 1863. Um, he was 10 years older than her, sh- a little shorter, as I said. It was it was sort of an opposites attract kind of thing. He was this dashing, romantic womanizer, heavy drinker, cigar smoker, which she hated. Tried to get him to quit many times, never did. Um, he had a good business sense, uh, but he was not a thinker, not an intellect, did not measure up in the Senate um, to people like Sumner. And this was a source of frustration both to Sprague and I think to to Kate as well. Um, so they began courting each other. She knew all of his faults. She knew about the drinking, etc. Um, I think she may have known about his past with a neighbor girl in Rhode Island who he supposedly got pregnant and then she disappeared only to come back into his life later. (laughs) Um, There's lots of letters back and forth during the courtship period where he kind of confesses to to, uh, a sadly disconnected mind, he calls it. Um, He accuses himself of childish and unmanly behavior. He he was kind of a mess mentally. I, I suspect I I don't know if I said this in the in the afterword of the book, but I suspect that he was what they used to call manic depressive. Now they call bipolar. Yeah. There was something off in his head where he would reach the extremes of elation and joy, and then hit these moods of depression and drinking that were just you know in in the depths. Um, his father was murdered when he was like thirteen years old. This yeah. always haunted him. Um, uh, you know, why, why they got together other than, uh, I, I think it was because Kate's father was, you know, pun intended, kind of a cold fish salmon. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and he was, Sprague was just the opposite. He was a very warm guy, but, but, you know, just, um, just kind of a mess. Uh, so she knew she was was getting into uh, most the the conventional wisdom historical wisdom is that she married him for his money right um or salmon had her marry him for his money yeah or or at least went along with it salmon salmon knew too that this guy was a little rough around the edges but i think he acquiesced in it because um you know he looked toward campaign finances from his son-in-law, which he did receive. But I think there was genuine love there uh, in the beginning. Um, uh, for whatever reason, I think Kate was genuinely genuinely attracted uh, to Sprague and, and vice versa. And talk about an amazing party. The wedding of Kate Chase and William Sprague on November 12, 1863 was the social event of the decade covered by all the papers, the kind of story that gave the country a little reprieve from the daily headlines of mass death as the North continued to struggle in its war with the South. Incredibly extravagant affair. The presidents there, all the dignitaries from the 
from the Union Army and the, the government of the United States, they're all there at the Chase home for that wedding. We asked John about this front page story, the wedding of Kate Chase. Well, it was in November of 1863, a week before Lincoln went to Gettysburg to give his famous address, and Lincoln was there. He was one of the guests, along with almost all of official Washington. Uh, this was at the Chase Mansion at, on 6th Street. Right. Uh, the only person missing was Mary Lincoln, um, whether it's because she disliked Kate or her, her official reason was she was still in mourning for her son, Willie, who had died uh, some months earlier. Um, but anyway, they had the, the wedding and the reception there at the, at the Chase Mansion. Very lavish, lots of food and drink, dancing. There was a, a, a case called the Kate Sprague March was specially composed for the occasion uh, by uh, a major composer of the day. She wore a diamond tiara, um, from Tiffany's that would be worth probably $100,000 today. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a big deal. Carriages were lined up down the street as far as you could see. Um, there are some interesting photo, a couple of photos of them taken, uh, more or less wedding photos taken shortly after the, the wedding. She's sitting and he's standing so that you don't see how much taller she is than, <laughs> than he, than he is. Um, and she looks a little dazed and confused in those photos. I think it was a little, um, there's a story of John Hay goes up to her at the end of the night on her wedding. She's meeting with some very close friends, you know, before they all go to bed. And Hay is one of them who goes up there and, um, I don't know what they said to each other, but he recorded in his diary later that, uh, she seemed a bit washed out but she also, it was apparent that she felt she had arrived. Salmon P. Chase still has designs on the presidency. In 1864, Backed by the money of Kate's husband, William, he makes a kind of ill-advised secret run for the presidential nomination from the same party as President Lincoln. Now, granted, Lincoln was not that popular at this point. Lincoln was sure that he would lose the election in 1864. But Chase's ill-advised run in the spring of 64 is discovered, and he's removed. Basically, he, he... gives a, you know, his resignation to Lincoln, who finally accepts Salmon P. Chase's resignation. Kate's devastated. Their decades of planning to make Salmon P. Chase president has failed. But before they can get too low, Roger Taney dies, then the Supreme Court Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Taney, just an old racist, Uh, responsible for the Dred Scott decision seven years earlier, saying that a black man has no rights that in which a white man is is duty-bound to respect. But Lincoln's smart. He knows that there's new laws coming. These laws are going to revolutionize African-American relations in the United States. They're going to revolutionize the social order in the United States. And Lincoln smartly 
nominates Salmon P. Chase, the old fugitive slave lawyer, to be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And what a change he would be from Roger Taney. And just like that, from the depths of despair, Kate and her, and her, uh, and her father, Salmon P. Chase, are back in the game. We ask uh, John Oller about this nomination and how Salmon P. Chase becomes the Chief Justice, just like the beer we're drinking today, the double IPA from Taft's Brewing down in Cincy called Chief Justice. Lo and behold, later that same year, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Roger Tawney, dies. So now there's an opening in, in the Chief Justice spot on the Supreme Court. Um, it's speculated that Chase is you know, in the running, but people think, well, will Lincoln you know, nominate someone who, who's kind of betrayed him? Um, Lincoln views Chase as the best man for the job, and also as someone who would who Lincoln thought would protect some of the wartime legislation and executive actions, um, uh, it turns out that didn't didn't actually um, pan out. Mm. Uh, but anyway, so he nominates names Ch- Sam and Chase to be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. There's a there's a a story I think apocryphal uh, where Kate is upset that. He's nominated to the Supreme Court because she still believes he he can be president someday, and she thinks that by putting him on the Supreme Court, Lincoln has put him on the shelf, That's so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And so she, she, this according to the story, she uh, it was it was Charles Sumner who urged Lincoln to nominate Chase. He was the biggest supporter of Chase for that job. She comes into the house at Sixth uh, Street. Her father's there. Sumner's there. She wags her finger at Charles Sumner and says, and you too, Mr. Sumner, you know, trying to put Papa on the shelf. Um, I don't believe the story because for two reasons. She knew that her father wanted to be Supreme Court Justice at that point. He didn't have anything, any other gig going. It was a pretty good gig. Um, and from her perspective and her father's perspective, it, they did not regard that as any impediment whatsoever to him running for president someday, if, yeah, he, if, right. he, if he so chose. Following the war and the death of Lincoln, her father oversees the impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson in 1868. And go back and learn all about that in our episode five, Ohio versus impeachment. But her father is still a major player in the political world, even though he's become a judge. It's not like today. Our Chief Justice John Roberts, if he announced he was going to run for president, I don't think people would react very well. But it was still a position in the 1860s that you could make a political run from. And Salmon P. Chase sees the writing on the wall. His old Republican Party is going to nominate Ulysses S. Grant. There's no doubt about it. The former general and hero of the Civil War. Salmon P. Chase has fallen out with the Republican Party And in 1868, he decides to make another run. And this time, he makes a serious run at president of the Democratic Party. The convention's held in the famed Tammany Hall. We've all heard of Tammany Hall, the bosses, boss tweed. And there was an actual hall, you know, convention area called Tammany Hall in New York City. And his number one political aide, his campaign manager, is Kate Chase. I mean, stop and think about that. In 1868, 
a woman who's not even allowed on the floor of the convention, which she was not. She was up in the gallery, not allowed on the floor because she was a woman, is running his campaign in the, in the back rooms. She rents a suite at, at a Fifth Avenue hotel, begins lobbying different Democrats. And it's a tough sell because he used to be the enemy of all these Southern Democrats and uh, his anti-slavery stances. But he, he's always had some Democratic leanings. And Kate has got this dream of becoming the first lady of the United States. And this really might be their last chance. The convention, the Democratic Convention of 1868. I just find it amazing that she's running his campaign. The cigars and the drinks and the smokes. And there in the middle of it is beautiful, elegant Kate Chase. Um, running the campaign of this dark horse candidate, her father, Solomon P. Chase for president. Yeah, well, in 1868, uh, Ulysses Grant was the obvious Republican choice. So there was no path to the Republican nomination for Sam and Chase. So, uh, uh, so with encouragement from Kate, uh, he just simply switches to the Democrats. Um, it was pure political expediency. He tries to explain it and defend it on the ground. Well, I had been a Democrat at one time back in the 1840s. And other than slavery, uh, he said he was always more democratic in his thinking, uh, you know, limited government. Of course, other than slavery, that's a pretty big caveat. (laughs) Um, uh, So he goes to the convention. Uh, He didn't physically go. He stays in Ohio. But but he's uh, at the convention in New York that summer. Now we're in 68. Uh, he's one of the leading candidates. Uh, had had a, a fair amount of support from Ohio Democrats. Uh, and New York's um, uh, kingpin, Samuel Tilden. Kate is his de facto unofficial campaign manager. She sets up headquarters in New York at one of the top hotels in the city. She has a parlor there. She brings in people to lobby them, uh, schmooze with them. She sends messengers to um, Tammany Hall, where the convention was being held, and they bring back messages to her to you know, tell her how things are going. As a woman, she's not allowed on the convention floor at that time, but, course, she, right. but, she, but she did sit in the gallery. And at one point, when her father's name is finally placed in nomination, there's this huge long ovation and demonstration for him. She stands up and joins in the cheering. She's very hopeful that that will start a, uh, uh, the floodgates, a bandwagon effect. Doesn't happen. Uh, Tilden and the Ohio Democrats end up throwing their support to a man named Horatio Seymour, who was a lifelong Democrat, uh, loyal, not a turncoat like Chase. Um, But I think ultimately he loses probably because he's burdened by his advocacy for African-American voting rights, which was an absolute no-no in the Democratic Party at that time. Right. But I mean, it's just incredible that she's running, you know, a woman is running someone's a really legitimate campaign for president in 1868. I mean, that is a real first, uh, you know, again, other than maybe like yes. we talked about Jesse. Um, Fremont. Yeah, yeah, Jesse Fremont. And I think Kate took the, his loss harder than her father did. She felt that Tilden and some other people had betrayed her father. She always held that against, against them. Um, there's some evidence to support that. But uh, in the end, he just was not popular enough with the rank-and-file Democrats. 
In the late 1860s and 70s, Kate's marriage to William Sprague is not going well. He has alcohol problems. He's known to have cheated. He's admitted to cheating on her. He disappears for weeks and months at a time. A neglect would be the term for it today. They have three or four kids. But Kate's clearly not happy. She's still in D.C. when she meets a senator from New York, a man named Roscoe Conkling. Conkling, known for being in great shape and dressing you know, incredibly fancy. Um, Conkling is someone we'll talk about during our presidential season, season four, about the Ohio presidents. We'll talk about his rivalry with James Garfield. But he was very famous. And we talked to John about the affair that Kate has with Roscoe Conkling. And this has a great effect on her fame. It really kills her fame. Once you become scandalized in that way nationally, as a woman in the 1870s, you can't really come back from that, from the Gilded Age shame of adultery. Conkling would become more famous. Of course, it's very unfair in that way. Um, but we asked John about the Conkling affair and how it sends Kate, Kate's star pointing downward. Roscoe Conkling was uh, the um, leader of the Republican Party in the Senate from the late 1860s until about 1880 or so. Uh, ironically, he was married to the sister of Horatio Seymour, who was the Democrat nominated over Chase in 1868. Uh, Conkling was from Utica, New York, a uh, very vain, egotistical, vengeful man, physically impressive, very tall, handsome, fit. He worked out, which was unusual in, that, in those days, a flashy dresser, a great speaker, an orator. Women came to see him speak in, in the Senate, and they'd send flowers to him there. Um, he had affairs while he was married, um, but Kate was the most long-lasting and notorious of his affairs. It, was, it had been rumored for a few years, uh, but it came into the open in the summer of 1879 in Narragansett, Rhode Island, there was a mansion there that Kate and her husband Sprague had built right on right along the ocean. Um, she, at this time, 1879, she's technically, she's still married to Sprague, but in name only. Uh, so he's away on business uh, in the Northeast, comes back early in the middle of the night uh, into the mansion, goes to a separate floor. It was big enough so that you could come in and go to your own floor and not know that somebody else is three floors down. Anyway, the next morning he gets up, he comes downstairs, and there's Kate and Conkling at breakfast. So he puts two and two together. He literally chases Conkling out of the house with a shotgun and threatens to shoot him. This makes front page headlines for weeks across the, across the country. It damages Conkling politically somewhat, uh, but it really ruins Kate uh, socially. Back then, there were no second acts for women uh, who were found, you know, guilty of adultery. Um, now, Salmon Chase is dead by this time. He yeah. would be turning over his grave if he knew his uh, daughter was scandalized in this way. Now, she, neither she nor Conklin ever admits the relationship per se. I think most historians, including myself, have concluded that, it, that there was a romantic relationship. Um, 
anyway, so she, this forces her out of the public eye. Kate's celebrity begins to wane, she's still not out of the papers. Her divorce with William Sprague, and not until 1882 was it finalized, but that is a giant story. Divorce. The scandal of divorce. You know, it's not as easy as it is nowadays. Um, you know, divorce in the 19th century. And Kate learns that. You know, it's kind of like the Princess Di and, and, and Prince Charles divorce uh, of my lifetime. It's a huge deal. She moves to Paris following the divorce, but we asked John about her divorce to William Sprague. Um, and she divorces Sprague in 1882. Very messy divorce, but ultimately they settle out of court. Um, she did have four children by Sprague, and the three girls go with her, and the boy, the oldest, goes with the father. Um, so partly to get away from it all. She goes to France with her three girls. Uh, they live in a suburb outside Paris uh, known as Fontainebleau. Uh, she sort of lives quietly there, raises her girls in a boarding school very similar to the one that she attended as a girl. Eventually she comes back to the United States, lives at her father's uh, old country estate um, on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. It was called Edgewood. They, they, he had had the, the mansion downtown, but he also had this country estate. I, I say country loosely because it's really just across the... It's still in D.C., yeah. but it's it felt like the country. One of the terms that she insisted on in the divorce was that she'd be able to go back to her maiden name, Kate Chase, which wasn't that easy to do back then. You couldn't yeah. just change your name. Divorce wasn't that easy back then. No, day. no. And she got nothing in the divorce. A divorcee, an adulterer, she scandalized Kate Chase in the 1880s. Uh, that's a bad thing. And she retreats from popular culture. She maintained this, this basically poverty-like existence in, in just north of D.C. It's a total fall from grace a woman who lived one of the most elegant lives of the Civil War and the Gilded Age. She's broke. She's on a farm. She becomes basically a farmer. We asked John about her final years, her fall from grace, and her ultimate death in Washington, D.C. in 1899 at the age of only 58. Uh, she, it's very expensive to keep up. She runs out of money, uh, has to go around uh, begging old friends of her father to, you know, loan her money or give her money. Uh, toward the very end of her life, she opens a dairy farm on the uh, country estate property and sort of barely ekes out a living selling chicken, and milk, eggs, asparagus. It's really kind of a poverty line existence. Uh, she develops kidney disease. They called it Bright's disease back then, and dies in Washington, D.C. in 1899 at age 58. Uh, she's then buried alongside her father in Cincinnati, 
uh, Spring Grove Cemetery, which is the home of many famous Cincinnatians, Cincinnatiites. Yeah, uh, Cincinnatians, I think. Um, uh, <laughs> and it's a simple marker, Kate Chase Sprague. Upon Kate's death in 1899, the Washington Post called her the most brilliant woman of her day, saying none outshone her. The Cincinnati Inquirer said no queen has ever reigned under the Stars and Stripes, but this remarkable woman came closer to being queen than any American woman has. Kate Chase was the first celebrity that I consider to be famous just for being famous. Celebrity culture wasn't really a thing like it is now. But in the 1860s, Kate changed that. We asked one last time, we asked John about her celebrity. She did have more substance than the people I was comparing her to earlier, the Paris Hiltons, the Kendall Jenners, the Kim Kardashians. Specifically speaking of women in the, in that period, right. uh, obviously you'd had first ladies like Dolly Madison and the, and the like, uh, who are became famous by virtue of their position. I mean, Kate had no official position. She was just Kate Chase, daughter of Sam and Chase. Um, so she was, I would call, say, sort of a people's magazine type celebrity, <laughs> the kind of that you would see on the cover, you know, maybe listed among the most 10 most beautiful or interesting people of the year. The media followed her every move, nothing like today's saturation coverage, but for the time, um, it was it was heavy media coverage. Uh, the birth of her son, first son was a national event. Her clothing that she bought in Paris and brought back set fashion trends. So there was a little bit of Jackie Kennedy, Jackie Onassis in her, a little bit of Hillary Clinton in the political sense, a little bit of even Ivanka Trump in the daughter of famous man sure. sense. So how's that for a trio? Um, <laughs> um, but I would say that Kay Chase had substance. She was not just a Kim Kardashian type, yeah. all glitz. She knew her politics. Uh, we see that in uh, 1868. Our book recommendation for today is American Queen by our guest John Oller. Uh, written in 2014, it's called American Queen, The Rise and Fall of Kate Chase Sprague, Civil War Belle of the North, and Gilded Age Woman of Scandal. Uh, an awesome book. I, I mean, I'm so glad that he wrote this, and, and really, it's, it's a fascinating read if you, if you think the life of Kate Chase is as interesting as I do. Guys, go get that book, American Queen. John Oller, one of my favorite guests. We'll have to find a way to have him on again. Um, Again, he is just such a great guy, and we appreciate him doing two episodes with us. One of our only two-episode guests, uh, along with Beth Weinhart, Jerry DePizzo, uh, and Bruce Carlson from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, which is, again, an amazing show that I hope you are listening to. Uh, just find that on iTunes Podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. 
and go check out John's book. Go buy that. He's written other books that are also great. He wrote a book about Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox, one of my brother's favorite Revolutionary War figures. Um, so he's really written about a lot of stuff that I'm very interested in. So thanks again to John. That'll do it for today, guys. Go rate and review the show. We continue to get more and more listeners. We're blown away by how many people are listening to the show uh, here in Season 2. Um, our Tecumseh episode, John's last episode, um, both have been very, very popular. And so as of some of our other episodes this season. Uh, go to f- our Facebook page, Ohio V The World, and click like. We're trying to get up to 1,000 likes here. Um, we're trying to do it organically, so do that for us. Check us out on Instagram, Ohio V The World Podcast. Uh, we're always posting on there. You can follow us, the website also, or email us. If you have questions, I know people always want to talk to me about the episodes. You can always Facebook message the page or email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Rate and review us on, on iTunes. Just scroll down, like I said, on your phone. It's right there on the main screen when you're listening to the show. You can rate and review us there. I can guarantee you this is the only podcast out there in the world about Kate Chase. We'll be back in two weeks. For episode nine, it'll be Ohio versus the Mafia. We're sitting down with author Rick Perello, author of Kill the Irishman, a book that was made into a, an actual feature film in 2011 about the Cleveland mob and the life of Danny Green. Really cool story. We're looking forward to it. All you fans of you know The Godfather and Goodfellas and Casino, uh, I think you're really going to like this story and just how prevalent the mob was in Ohio and how Danny Green helps to bring it down. So that'll be episode nine next. So join us for that one. Thank you guys so much for, uh, for letting me talk about Kate Chase, one of my favorite figures in history, the original celebrity. Thanks for joining us, guys. That's been episode eight, Ohio vs. Celebrity. We'll see you next time. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.